gentlemen, welcome to Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet. Welcome to the first episode of It's Still Real to Me on Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet, where every episode we're going to be looking back at one of wrestling's many great wrestling documentaries. I'm your host, my name's Chris Murray, and for episode one, where better could we look than the story behind one of the most divisive and outspoken men in wrestling history? I can only be talking about CM Punk. His documentary, Best in the World, was released on DVD and Blu-ray on October 9th, 2012. Ten years and four days ago, (laughs) as we (laughs) record this evening. And who better to analyse and critique it than me, the man who has made a career out of stealing CM Punk's gimmick. Of course, I couldn't do this on my own, so I'm joined by the two-man power trip. They are the John Laurinaitis and Vince McMahon to my CM Punk. It's Andy Mitchell and Scott McLeod. Welcome, guys. How are you doing? I don't know who's who in this uh, conversation, because I'm taller than Scott, so does that mean he's Vince and I'm John Rollinitis? Given what we've learned about both men this year, I don't think we want to be either one. No, yeah, true, good point. true. That's a lot of the reason why we decided to do this, is because watching this documentary, which was 10 years ago now, so much of it feels really relevant. Like I'm talking this week, this month, of everything that's happened in the world of wrestling. Watching this back, there was so many moments where I was just like, you couldn't have told me in 2012 what would happen in wrestling in 2022 but then again you couldn't have told me what was going to happen in 2022 in the world back in 2012 i don't think any of us really saw anything coming hopefully if you're listening you've watched the documentary recently but before we dive into it we have to set the scene andy do you remember what your first ever memory of cm punk was I think that I don't remember him on ECW, but I remember like uh, I had like a few rock friends at the time when we used to listen to Slipknot and stuff like that when when I was a lot younger, and they were talking about oh, have you seen this guy CM Punk? He's like oh he's got like tattoos and he comes out to kill switch engage and I remember seeing him and obviously in the games but I can't really remember. I think it might have been when 2007, like towards the summertime, was when I kind of started to pick up on who he was. But I was I was aware of him. It wasn't until the pipe bomb is when I got even more aware of him. So I've been thinking about it in my head as soon as you answer that question. I realised it might be slightly convoluted in my explanation as to how I first saw CM Punk because round about end of two thousand and six, start of two thousand seven, I took a wee break from wrestling. But I did remember seeing a few clips from CM Punk because I, I remember I did watch December to Dismember. Didn't fully process just how shit it was. But I did see that and a few clips from ECW. I don't, I don't remember ECW being that easy to watch. To me, he was just another guy on ECW. But then I came back in 2009 just as he was kicking off the Straight Edge Society stuff. And I thought he was very easy to hate. So I was still very much a mark when I joined back in in 2009. <laughs> but I got into kind of that and then I watched back some of his ECW stuff and he's all finding out what Straight Edge was and everything. After the pipe bomb, and then when this documentary came out, I was bought and I was sold 
all in CM Punk. I had the CM Punk shirts. I was the biggest CM Punk fan in the world. It's very different from how I am now. Through these people, I discovered him in Ring of Honor as well, but don't want to get too ahead of myself. Yeah, absolutely, because that is the good thing about this documentary is it covers everything from day one in the wrestling business all the way through to pretty much the release date of the DVD. This, as we mentioned, came out in October 2012, so just about 10 years to the day. Punk at the time was in his 11th month as the 110th WWE champion. He'd beat Alberto Del Rio. And just before we dive into it, have you guys watched this before, Andy? I have, yeah. Uh, my friend had it. I think he got it on DVD. And I think after he watched it, he gave us a loan of it. So the last time I watched it would have been the, the first time I watched it in 2012. And again, as you said at the start, there's just so much relevance from what you said then to now. And then it's like, I remember really enjoying it when I watched it. But then because of how my sort of feelings towards Punk now after that media scrum, I'm a bit like, I don't know if I like him as much. It's just, this story is a good story. But I'm like, oh, I don't know. I just... Just a very different watch after 10 years. I bought this when it came out. Like I said, by this time now, I was all in on CM Punk. He was one of my favourites in WWE at that time. So I was counting the days every time they showed the adverts on, on WWE programme, counting the days until I could go to HMV with some money I had left over from my birthday and buy the DVD. I can't remember how many times I watched it. And, you know, I'm that lazy. I didn't even try and seek out, see if I still have it. I just watched it on the network when I was watching <laughs> it back for this. It might have been easier to find it in your room rather than that. It took me ages to try and find it on the network. <laughs> that's so true. Like, that's such a good point. Like, I, this was like in a pre-network era of media for WWE, like stuff like this. I remember this and the Triple H documentary came coming out and both just being fantastic. Pretty sure Punk left literally a month, maybe a month and a half before the network went live in like 2014. I was actually shocked. I was 50-50 when I went on the documentaries about the network and thought, is this even going to be still there? Because you know how WWE can be with like, when they're kind of falling out with somebody and they can remove any content related to them. But no, I was shocked to see it was still up there. Especially now that somebody, you know, Vince never had an issue with Punk, seeing the Punk never had an issue with Vince, but another man who's now in control is seemingly the guy that he had an issue with. And we're going to talk about him in a little bit as well. My story with this documentary is a bit weird. So I, in 2010, 11, 12, I was in university. And when CM Punk came on the scene, I just became obsessed with him. I remember this documentary when it came out, I was saving it for ages. So I was like, this is going to be the best thing that wrestling media has like ever created. I remember I had to fly somewhere. I think it was in 2014 or maybe 15, and I'm shit scared of flying. And I remember thinking, right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get that, I'm going to bring it on my phone, and when I have to go on the plane, I'm going to sit and watch the documentary, and that's going to calm me down, and everything's going to be okay. So eventually it got to the day when I had to go on the plane, uh, you know, went up in the air, terrified, started watching the documentary, and I was like, this is great. And... Uh, got a bit freaked out because I had headphones in and my brain felt weird and I ended up stopping it after about half an hour. So I've watched half an hour and then this week I've watched the rest of it <laughs> and it was just it was fun to finally complete the loop. Yeah I'm a card carrying member of the CM Punk fan club. I, I would argue I'm even slightly a CM Punk denier sometimes when he gets himself <laughs> in a bit of hot water. I've got one of my many CM Punk t-shirts on at the moment, I've got three. I've got the old school white one. I've got this one that has the entire pipe bomb promo written out, out on it, which 
looked a lot better online because actually looks quite crap in real life because <laughs> the font's so small. And then I've also got one that I've never been able to get since. It was like punk as Thor and I loved it. And then I shrunk it in the wash and it now just sits in the bottom of a drawer somewhere. I got gifted a CM Punk, funny enough, by the guy who kind of introduced me to CM Punk. He got me the, the go to sleep yellow t-shirt. It was just, it just didn't fit me properly. And I remember just giving it to one of my friends and I was like, yeah, you can, I was like, I should have just kept that. It could have been like worth yeah. money. Yeah, <laughs> I, I had a couple of punk shirts. I had the, the white, the old school white one that Kenny was wearing when he came back after Money in the Bank. And I had the yellow one, which I, I got it because it was the shirt he was currently always wearing on TV at the time. And then after a few wears, I kind of looked down like, this actually doesn't look like the best T-shirt. Like I didn't like it was too bright yellow and everything. And I don't know. I really like that T-shirt design. I don't know what it is. It just, sta- it just stands out to the status. I held on to the white one for ages and I was trying to remind myself if I still had it anywhere because I was going to dig it out for, for this show, you know, because I feel weird being the only one not wearing a CM Punk shirt. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> okay, right. Ten minutes in, let's actually start the DVD. So the doc starts with like a very classic 2010s era WWE intro. It's the one that starts, yes, sir, we promised you a great main event here tonight. It's brilliant. There's been loads of iconic ones over the years. This one and the like last three before this, I think, are all just prime wrestling era for me. The show starts with a voiceover intro from Punk. And I actually wrote down everything he says because I feel like it's so true. He says, I'm a guy for all intents and purposes, never should have even made it to the WWE. I've had roadblock after roadblock after roadblock thrown in my way. But not only did I get past those roadblocks, I did it while flipping off the people who put up those roadblocks. I feel I have a responsibility to the younger wrestlers on the roster, the ones who aren't signed yet, and the future of pro wrestling as a whole (laughs) to help make this place better and to change this place. I certainly can't change it by sitting on my couch in Chicago. His words there, the first words of the whole DVD, I feel like I want to tell him the words that he said now and see how that makes him feel with everything that came out of the media scrum. We'll talk a bit more about that at the end. But yeah, we we start with some sort of B-reel footage of Punk like getting up and getting dressed in Chicago. We see him sitting down with his dog Larry to watch some wrestling, where the first three people on the screen are Vince McMahon, John Cena, and Triple H. I just think that that's, that's so perfect in the career mm. of CM Punk to include those three. I don't know about you guys, but I, I'm sure he was actually watching wrestling or whatever was on Raw that week of whenever, whenever they were shooting the documentary because you always think like late 2011 right before he's about to win the tail they're probably filming most of this but like yeah. i watched the way the tail the quality of the images of the three people just said look on the television i watched it twice i thought there's no way that's actually what's on the tv that's been superimposed <laughs> in in the edit absolutely yeah i bet we never would have thought where vince mcmahon triple h and john cena would be in 2022 john cena turns out actually is a good actor Triple H is done with wrestling quite suddenly, but he's also just taken over the company from Vince McMahon. Like, again, in 2012, yeah. if we'd have thought this would happen, we'd just be like, what the fuck? No, I've got more to say about Triple H, but that'll be more when it's the pipe bomb. So we get a bit of backstory on CM Punk's family and how he left them to move in with his friend Chez. <laughs> I wrote down, it's like parallels between his childhood and his relationship with WWE. It's like from a young age, he felt he didn't belong. His brother was main event in the household and he didn't feel like he wanted to stay. So <laughs> so true. He's just like, well, yeah, he just talks about how his parents give his older brother a lot more attention than him. 
And we dive into a bit of his musical background as well, including we get some interviews with Lita and Lars Fredriksson from Rancid. They talk about how much just like punk and hardcore music means a lot to them. And he speaks about Roddy Piper being a big inspiration to them. I, I never really thought about this until he said it. It makes perfect sense. Both guys, not the biggest guys in the company, but amazing talkers, great at getting people to hate them. It makes sense that that was the person that inspired him to be a wrestler. Yeah, I think he's. I think he said in shooting interviews in like his Ring of Honor days, where he openly admitted like Roddy Piper was one of, if not his favorite wrestlers of all time. Like even recently, like I think they made references to his love of Piper during his feud with MJF, because also that's why they did the dog collar thing, and also mm-hmm. it was one of MJF's best burns on Punk. He went, "See, you're not really like Piper Punk because unlike you, Piper actually may have ended a WrestleMania." I forgot about that. Yeah. So it's quite interesting. One of the things that comes out early in the documentary is that they started their own backyard fed called the LWF, which got them a lot of heat from the Chicago wrestling scene as they didn't know how to wrestle and they were just sort of making up as they go along. And then he speaks out about his brother who stole money from him and drove this huge wedge between him and his family. I did a bit of digging on his brother, actually. His brother's name is Mike Brooks. Mike and Punk were sort of latecomers to the, the world of pro wrestling. They never watched wrestling until they were quite late into high school. Of course, at first, they both grew up on Hulk Hogan, but then they learned to appreciate the proper wrestlers, guys like Savage, DiBiase, Mr. Perfect. Of course, Savage would be a huge influence on Punk later on in his life. Mike spoke about this embezzlement issue, which Punk talks about. He says, like, you'd never steal from your own brother. Well, Mike said on a podcast, I think back... In the mid-2010s, he said, I made a huge fucking mistake. But what they don't tell you in the documentary is that I paid it all back. He says that he doesn't go a day without it being on his mind, but he tries to move on and mend fences with his family and friends, which he did successfully, except for Punk. And then when asked if he would ever speak to Punk again, Mike said, it's been almost 20 years since I talked to the guy. I'm sure things were different from what we remember, but it is what it is. I think that's quite interesting. Like they, I mean, they got over pretty quickly in this documentary that Punk has deep-rooted issues with all the members of his family. Yeah, I think the reason they were bringing it up is, I think for Punk, we've seen, like, even though it was a shitty thing for his brother to do, if you do something that wrongs him to a certain degree, no matter what you do, try and make up for it, he probably will still hold it against you for life. It's quite interesting. Was obviously, it talks about his dad drinking and driving and being sick in the car, and I was like, is his dad Randy Marsh? <laughs> also love the fact that his dad was drunk and so he was late picking up from Little League and then he last thing was which was probably already a sin because he was supposed to be the assistant coach <laughs> so, so, something like because it's quite sad a lot of things like immediately saying like how he worried about his dad because I'll say for people watching at the time the stuff with Jericho when Jericho brought up his dad's issues there he mentions the issues with his brother and everything they don't really go into too much they kind of dance around why him and his mum don't get along I wish they kind of would have went more into because they're like, oh, I never, he and his mum never got along. He never felt like he belonged at home. Like, I think it was clearly his mum and his dad favoured his brother or like gave him more opportunities. Like, it's a case of only one of these kids can afford to go to college and they chose the wrong son, it sounds like. Yeah, that's a depressing aspect of American family life, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Eventually, runs into a steal. And via Ace, he meets Chris Hero and Colt Cabana, and they start sort of breaking out of the Chicago wrestling world and into other promotions, where Punk and Colt Cabana are sort of a showcase match going about these Mm. small federations. Punk's girlfriend at the time, Natalie, 
was the one who pushed him towards using his straight edge persona, no drugs, no alcohol, turn that into a heel persona and make the crowd absolutely hate him. And it works. He ends up doing a TLC match in IWA with Chris Hero. And it just ends up getting both wrestlers' names on the map. This period of Punk's wrestling career feels very, very important. Obviously, the main issue with this is that a lot of footage of it just doesn't exist. Mm. But I feel like these matches with Cole and Chris Hero, I feel like these are some of the best stuff of his career. Yeah, because it shows you, obviously, the Chris Hero match where it's literally just them going crazy. And obviously, that's getting all the hype and the buzz. I, I wrote down it's like Colt Cabana, Friends for Life. <laughs> but no, it's like because that's what the IWA the promotion was. Is that where he uh, faced Eddie Guerrero as well? Was that IWA? Was that Ring yeah, of Honor? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. IWA, yeah, yeah. And again, that's a dream match for him where he does say that uh, he thought he knew everything about wrestling until he was in the ring with Eddie, and uh, he realised he didn't know that much. <laughs> Eddie's matches in that period are just fascinating because, like, he still had some dates booked after he went back to WWE. So he goes back to WWE in two thousand two. And there's somewhere, like, he goes even after he beats RVD for the IC title. So there's, like, clips of Eddie Guerrero going to indie shows with the IC title mm. around his waist. And, like, I think there's even a match out there of, like, Rey Mysterio still unmasked, not yet signed to WWE. Eddie Guerrero on his break from WWE and CM Punk in a triple threat match in IWA, which is, again, bizarre, especially given the feud Eddie and Ray would have later on. But given what we know now, just talking about how, how friendly he and Coke Cabana were, <laughs> Despite the yeah. fact Punk said in the media scrum, I've wanted nothing to do with them for almost a decade. And this documentary came out almost a decade yeah. ago. Just, there's a lot of interesting tidbits in this where people were like talking about Punk and then it's like you see the relationships now and you're like, I bet they regret saying all that nice stuff about him. The bit where, where Lita and, and Lars and all that are talking about straight edge. One of my least favorite things about the documentary is it seemed to be for large portions of their bits to camera, they decided to just put the text up on screen. It gave me horrible flashbacks to that period in 2018 where every backstage promo was a guy who looked like a wrestler filmed it on their phone and the words would pop up and like it's just big block paragraphs of text like are you that lazy just to show them like you don't have any footage like let's just put the words up in big colourful letters. Yeah that, that leads us all the way to 2002 where Gabe Sapolsky gets in touch with CM Punk and Colt Cabana to bring them both to Ring of Honor. It's here that CM Punk meets Raven who Punk says in the documentary taught him loads mm. about the business. Punk and Ravens is like how I first discovered him. In the very early days of TNA, Punk was a member of The Gathering, which was like the Ravens flock mm -hmm. in TNA. Mm -hmm. He was a member, Mickey James was a member, and our previous guys. That was when I first heard of him, and I didn't hear anything more of him until he got to ECW. It was cool to sort of see this CM Punk and Raven relationship. He cuts this amazing promo in the documentary where he's talking about Raven pissing away all the opportunities that were handed to him in WWF. This, of course, is after his WWF run in 2001. So, yeah, it's, it's really great promo work from CM Punk. We get a sneaky peek of a dog collar match, which CM Punk mm -hmm. was in, which I think it was against Raven. And, of course, that was cool because CM Punk revisited this in his match with, was it MGF and yeah. AEW? And the dog collar match, it was the same outfit yeah. that he wore in the Ring of Honor match, which I thought a really cool spot. And then, of course, we get to the feud of all feuds from Ring of Honor, him and Samoa Joe, where Punk wrestles the longest title match in ROH history. Now, they didn't spend loads of time on Ring of Honor in the documentary, but it was really cool to see 
pre-WWE contract CM Punk Ring of Honor being talked mm-hmm. about a bit with Joe and Raven and a bunch of other guys as well. I know it was a pretty big deal because I think that's the first one they've actually got, like, they've sort of acknowledged that there's outside promotions and obviously uh, the Samoa Joe versus Punk site like, was it one of the only five-star matches that Dave Meltzer gave for Ring of Honor and okay. one of two for CM Punk. But again, yeah, it's just an interesting period. If anything, it kind of the fact that it's so short, it makes you kind of want to go and watch these matches. I think it actually says in the 2000 to like 2010, like right before obviously Punk gets the five star match with Cena. Like from 2000 to 2010, there were only seven five star matches from Meltzer, and three of those seven went to Samoa Joe. Like one of the Punk ones is match with Kenta Kabashi in Ring of Honor and the Unbreakable Triple Threat match from TNA, and it's obvious why. Joe isn't in this documentary being interviewed because he's still under TNA contract. But again, at this time in 2012, seeing Joe getting any sort of showcase on a WWE product was just bizarre because obviously it was thought at that time he would never make it to WWE. And I don't know what his relationship like was like with WWE at this point, but I would have liked if they got a short bit from Raven, if they could have interviewed Raven about this feud. I know they don't mention Punk being TNA, but I think a lot of people have noticed the fact that I used to go to Nashville on Wednesdays I think TNA used to do the weekly pay-per-views in the Nashville Fairgrounds. All of people think that's him referencing TNA, but not actually seeing them. Yeah, it's interesting as well, and I feel I have to kind of mention it, that this would have been right around the Rob Feinstein scandal, which mm. basically led to wrestlers at the time who were splitting their time between Ring of Honor and TNA. Basically, they all just picked a side. And all of a sudden, Daniels and AJ were just TNA, and all of a sudden guys like Joe and Punk were just Ring of Honor. And I feel like the steps that those, those wrestlers chose, like the, the paths that they chose, were very key to their career. Because would Joe have been as big a star if he'd have gone to TNA when AJ did? And would Daniels have been a bigger star if he'd have competed in Ring of Honor instead of TNA? Mm-hmm. And, and it especially like rings true for Punk. Like when he was in TNA the first time around in like 2001 too, he was very much kind of lower down on the card. I don't know if he would have been the star in TNA that he was in Ring of Honor. So I think Punk was really smart in the steps that he took around that mm. time. I think they had to, you know, mention these other promotions because, you know, Punk had mentioned them in his pipe bomb, like he mentioned Ring of Honor particularly. And I think it was the idea of showcasing Punk because before Brian and Seth and some of the other guys that would come up through the later version of NXT, Punk was the first properly guy from these kind of indies who worked his way up got to a big position there where he was like became WWE champion so I think obviously to accurately tell the story of Punga would have been weird if they tried to dance around his indie career like it could have been easy for them not to get footage but it shows a lot of effort from WWE at that time. Well the say in the documentary is kind of like the last of the territorial sort of guys in this new era because that's not normal for him to to, to be that territorial when it's like 2000s and there's only supposed to be like one big company. So his Ring of Honor run goes all the way through till 2005. And that's the point in the documentary where he tells Gabe that he's been signed to WWE. But instead of leaving straight away, Punk goes on this brilliant anti-Ring of Honor goodbye run for a number of months. It was called The Summer of Punk. And it starts with him cutting one of the most famous promos. Now, it's only covered a little bit in the documentary, but I had to go away and watch the full five-minute thing. His words are so good, and these are, these are just a few of them. He says, this belt in the hands of any other man is just a belt. In my hands, it becomes power. Just like this microphone in the hands of any of the boys in the back is just a microphone, but you put it in the hands of a dangerous man like myself, 
and it becomes a pipe bomb. This is my stage, this is my theatre, and you are my puppets. And I won't stop until I prove that I'm better than all of you. And then he ends it by saying, ladies and gentlemen, the champ is here. It's just, <laughs> it's just so perfect. If you get the chance, it's just like a five minute yeah. video on YouTube, go and watch it. This just leads to this brilliant period of heel CM Punk in Ring of Honor for three months. He signs his WWE contract and a suit on top of the Ring of Honor title. It's brilliant. Before bowing out of Ring of Honor with that two out of three falls match against Colt Cabana. It's quite cool because like he goes on his wee three-month heel run, but then by the time he gets to the Colt Cabana match, you can see that he's back to being faced and he's crying at the fans yeah. and stuff. It's a good way to go out. No, it is because it's, it's a good, again, that just building that much heat and knowing that the fans, that first time round, the fans sort of knew that he was leaving to turn it into an angle. Again, very selfless of Punk. They don't show in the documentary, but I remember Mick Foley made some appearances for Ring of Honor and he had a segment with Punk. Because this run with Punk being against Ring of Honor, wanting to take the belt with him in WWE and sign the contract on does have big vibes of Mick Foley's 1995 run before he left ECW to go to WWE, where he was suddenly the anti-hardcore guy and he mm. decided to wind up the ECW fans by having fight by getting guys in headlocks and just staying there for five minutes and just letting the fans get more and more angry. And also, it's notable that this would be around this time where he would switch from the AFI song to Cult of Personality. Oh, I didn't realise that. Yeah, yeah, he only used it for a few months, and then he, I think he used AFI for his final match as kind of the big goodbye, as if because he was going out as the fan favorite CM Punk. That sort of leads us right into his WWE career, and my memory would make me think that he went from Ring of Honor to ECW, but no, he starts his career by being shipped to OVW. Now he hates this; he sees this as a massive demotion. Mm. Of course, it was. I mean, I'm pretty sure OVW at this time television-wise, would have been on, like, locally, not nationally. I remember, actually, now that you've said that, did you ever read Power Slam? I first started getting that in 2005, and I think that's when I actually first started reading about this guy called CM Punk. And again, it's like, as he says in the documentary, it's like, there's all this buzz about who CM Punk is, so they sign him, but they're like, we don't know what to do. Thankfully, it wasn't all bad ending up in OVW because that's where he met Paul Heyman. It's weird mm. to think that Paul Heyman at the time was just hidden away in a non-TV role. Essentially, this must have been post-Brock Lesnar, but pre-ECW yeah. time. So that period when Paul wasn't on TV, it really came across to me. I don't know what you guys think, but it really came across to me that Heyman was just telling everyone in WWE that CM Punk was money and that guys were just kind of ignoring him. Because they thought, ah, oh, you've done this before. You've told us about yeah. these indie guys. And it bugged me because Michael Hayes comes on the camera and he says, like, um, people were kind of not really ready to bring him up. People higher up in WWE. And I'm like, well, you're higher up in WWE. And then Jim Ross comes on the camera and he says the same thing. And I'm just like, why didn't you just admit that it was you guys? I bet you Hayes and Jim Ross, I bet you they're happy to go on these documentaries and look back and say, yeah, yeah, we knew he was a star from the start. It would actually come across better if they just admitted, like, he wasn't a big guy and we didn't like him. The problem was, obviously, it doesn't mention it in the documentary, is that he had, like, so much heat in OVW. I think, obviously, everyone knows what Punk's like. Punk thinks he knows best and he thinks he should control his character. And it's apparently it was that thing where if, like, if he'd done something that was slightly wrong, they'd punish him because they just didn't like him. So that's why they were always like, get rid of this guy. Because he just seems yeah. like he's too much trouble. But again, they're not going to admit that when he's the best of the world. So it's that's all I got when I was watching. He just like he just he's so sure of himself. And like, yeah, that's good. That he's confident. But just 
he's just such a prick as well when he's just the way he talks <laughs> about himself. And I'm like, of course I'm yeah. Billy Hart. Put this guy down. Who do you think he is? <laughs> yeah, Chris, something I noticed, I wanted to comment and you mentioned it already, that when he was talking, and particularly when Triple H was also talking about those two, they would always say, oh, other people, or there were some people who thought this about Paul, like, clearly you're one of those people who thinks this about him. And I think with him, and I think it was around 2004, he was, like, working backstage as, like, the creative guy for SmackDown, which he'd have been doing since, like, the initial start of the brand split. You know, he was also buying the SmackDown 6 and everything. I think he mentions part of the reason he got let go from that session was, I think he accidentally joined a, oh, a conference call. He wasn't supposed to, like, for Raw or whatever. And they were like, why are you spying on this conference call? Like, no, I didn't realise it was maybe. So he kind of got moved to OVW kind of out of the way. He mentions a part of the reason that he knew who Punk was because of Gabe Sapolsky, who was a protege of Paul Heyman. Mm. Heyman had so much heat that the fact he was building up CM Punk, everyone was like, ah, yeah, right, sure. Right. Like, another one of these Heyman guys who I think they assumed wasn't as good as Heyman yeah. was saying. The thing is as well, like John Cena interestingly says, it's like there's all this like hype. Why is there all this hype about him and stuff? And again, it's that famous thing where Vince McMahon doesn't, he just knows you're popular, he doesn't know why. So it's like, I think there's a story where Mick Foley assumed he got signed to WWE because Vince had saw his matches and they were like, <laughs> Vince doesn't have a clue who you are. That's the M-Punk kind of vibe. He may have said in later, and if you think he, was, he may have been on a, an Inside the Ropes kind of thing or Austin's podcast, one of the two, he said like, if ECW had the money to stay around for a few more years, like 2002 and 2003, what? We probably would have signed a lot of the guys who you would have seen in Ring of Honor, a lot of those indie and DNA, like those indie guys. And he said Pumpkin Danielson would have been like up there. So I think that's why he was so heavily pushing. I mean, the ECW, the idea of like, if we had this guy in ECW, this is the kind of star he would be in. Obviously, they don't mention it in this documentary, but Punk says his best time in ECW was probably before Heyman got let go because Heyman was constantly pushing for him to win the ECW title. I was just thinking there as well, like you mentioned Paul Heyman talking about Gabe Sapolsky. Mm-hmm. Gabe's had quite an interesting career and he's probably had quite a lot to do with CM Punk over the years. Like he started out as a writer for ECW and was there until they closed. He then, of course, was involved in Ring of Honor and he was with them until I think 2008. Then he launched Dragon Gate USA, which is another huge indie. He was mm-hmm. involved in Full Am- Impact Pro and then eventually founded Evolve as well Mm. and then brokered the deal with Evolve being bought out by WWE. He worked with WWE until the start of this year and most recently has rejoined WWE's creative team. It's quite interesting to see how his stories went. I think he was one of the ones like like at the same time as like Road Dogg and Regal like basically people who worked creatively in NXT under Triple H as soon as Triple H was gone was suddenly out the door but then Triple H like, oh no, Regal's happy where he's in EW, but you know, as Triple H comes back in, I oh, wrote dog, Gabe, on you's come back in. Come on, I've left the mm. door open for you. There's clips from each man's like bits to camera, like Punk by the Water talking about how he owes his career and WWE to Paul Heyman and bits that Heyman said about him. I think when Heyman eventually turns on Punk in 2013, at the start of the promo package, they use bits from this documentary right before they show the clip of Heyman turning on to like establish the relationship and the betrayal of Paul Heyman. Mm. Before we dive in too much to WWE, CW, we get a jump cut to modern day, well, 2012 punk. He's traveling between shows on a tour bus, which he says he invested in for his own future and for his own health. He talks about looking after his knees and he points out, I need to make as much money as I can and I need to save it. I just thought that was a really cool insight. Apparently the bus was something he demanded in his new contract. I remember reading that. It wasn't like something he invested in. I think he was like, I want it. 
Well, I think it's because like he wants to be treated as a star, like people like Cena. So like, well, I want what they get. If they get a bus, then yeah. I get a bus. But he did say that it kind of goes against his indie background. Because like, I remember the days where you were cramming as many people as you could in a car. Punk and Joe did a shoot interview for Ring of Honor. They're talking about a thing where a bunch of wrestlers went back to someone's one of the wrestlers' mum's houses and they all sleep on the floor. Like it was those two low-key homicide. Homicide was drunk. And then they find out later on, like, we were all told to leave. Like, what happened? I think Homicide went into so-and-so's mum's bedroom and accidentally pissed on the floor. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, no. It cuts from his flashy bus back to the 15th of August, 2006. And that is the night that he debuts in WWE CW. I remember this. I remember the, like, weeks and weeks of lead-up with all the promos he was doing. I think... Paul Heyman says in one of the interviews that CM Punk was his first draft pick for ECW. He comes out in ECW to his brilliant Kill Switch Engage theme tune, which I just loved. It's one of my favorite wrestling mm. entrance music ever. Heyman points out that he knew he would be a star. He knew it and everyone else knew it, but it was just nobody above that would accept it. That was a brilliant time to get our first John Cena interview. He speaks about Punk's hype and just general indie wrestlers hype never being able to live up to the hype when they actually come in and wrestle and Daniel Bryan is there too and he speaks about how he never thought that Punk could be the face of the company as you say I also believe it's like when you see Punk it's an image problem and WWE is obviously like well this guy doesn't fit our image like John Cena's our image CM Punk is totally not like that he sort of flirts with big wrestling moments around this time like sort of late 2006 he, of course, features in DX's team at Survivor Series in November. That was his, one of his big, like, sort of mm. mainstream WWE pushes. And then, of course, as well, he was on the ill-fated Extreme Elimination Chamber pay-per-view uh, December to December and December. And then, finally, he gets the pay-per-view spotlight in 2007. Heyman is already gone at this point. He's been fired or has left the previous December. And it's at this time that CM Punk has a series of matches with John Morrison, which mm. Punk himself admits were terrible. Now, I had a look. It was Vengeance in June. That was their first match. Great American Bash was in July. And then SummerSlam, their third match, was in August. That Vengeance match was the one that was supposed to be Chris Benoit, right? Yeah. Of course, John Morrison steps in and wins the belt. And that's how the series of matches started happening. It's weird to think that CM Punk's future success is so much attributed to him just being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Like, John Morrison comes in, that starts this series of matches that gets him on pay-per-view. They finally click on an episode of ECW where CM Punk beats John Morrison for the title. And this was right around the time that I actually stopped watching for a bit. So do you guys remember anything about these matches with Morrison and were they as bad as he made out? Because I just thought it was two young stars getting a chance um, to be on TV together. It, it was just like TV time. It was like you watch that Benjamin match and watch like seven minutes or something. It's not long. And I'm pretty sure John Morrison's still Johnny Nitro. But they did want to build a program between them two. And again, as you say, it's like if Ben one ever done the crimes that he did, it did give that opportunity for John Morrison to kind of become a bigger star and CM Punk to work with someone quite different. And as you say, it's two young guys trying to like go for that belt. And it was quite an interesting series of stuff because they were quite polar opposites as well, as it mentions in the documentary. I think the fact that Morrison just showed up as Nitro and won the title, everyone's very much on their hands when the, the finish happens. It's out of nowhere. And like you said, they're not bad matches, I don't think. 
I think a big reason Punk even won the title in the September match in ECW is because a week after Benoit, they did a, a check for anybody who was on illegal substances. There were like 11 guys on the list, and Morrison was found to be one of them, so Morrison had to take a 30-day suspension. When Morrison came back, he quick soon went into his thing with Miz, and that tag team then formed. That was interesting. I totally forgot about the wellness check, yeah, because that would have been yeah, a big thing. So again, as you said, Chris, like right place, right time. Punk even puts in the documentary that I won the ECW title, but I'm holding on to it tightly because it's probably as far as I'm going to go. Like I said at the top, like I'm a big CM Punk denier. I tend to ignore a lot of the bad stuff because I've always kind of loved him. But I thought I did notice straight away. It was quite interesting here that he says that the three matches against Morrison were like quite poor. All of those he lost, and then the one that he says that they really click is the one that he wins. And I don't know if wrestling's as simple as that, because I know that wrestlers don't care as much about winning and losing as we do. But I was like, did you only love it because you won and you came out on top and you got to stand on the turnbuckle holding the belt? I mean, it's not a much of a stretch to say that Punk had a high opinion of himself. Yeah. I mean, we knew that not going by in. Any means. <laughs> and like, I think he also said that the fact that he rarely ever had a good match that was left in 15 minutes at that point, because they do a big stretch in his indie career talking about how much he loved being an Iron Man and going those long matches. There's actually another match that they don't talk about. They were really doing the Saturday night's main events around that time. Punk earns his SummerSlam match because John Morrison does a thing called the 15 minutes of fame. You either beat me in under 15 minutes or last the full 15 minutes to get your title shot and Punk goes to a 15 minute draw with him. So I don't, he doesn't talk about it, but I'm assuming it's like he says, like, oh, I don't like going anything less than 15 minutes. Well, I bet you enjoyed that one because not only did you, like you said, come out on top, but you got your 15 minutes. I'm pretty sure ECW was like an hour at the time. You're just not yeah. getting a 15 minute match on that show. That leads us into a sort of flash forward, flashback period of the documentary, which I quite enjoyed. He's at some sort of Comic-Con. Stanley yeah. cameo. We get a quick Stanley cameo. He's there with Chris Hemsworth as well. And oh my God, it's the happiest CM Punk has in the whole oh. documentary. <laughs> I did like the uh, fan said that he compared wrestlers to superheroes. I quite liked that. So that gives us a flashback to WrestleMania 24 in 2008, which was a huge WrestleMania for CM Punk. Cause that was when he won the Money in the Bank ladder match. That was the one that Jeff Hardy was supposed to win. Yeah, because so, Jeff got suspended. I think it was his second violation in February. Still like, amazing, though, for Punk, though. Yeah. Even though he's on ECW, he's on the third-tier brand. Out of all the seven guys, you know, the second choice is weirdly given to Punk. I'm assuming because maybe they thought no one would expect it because you had Morrison in there who they clearly were high on because he had that look. You even had Jericho, the guy who created Money in the Bank, who's been on record, like, I thought it was weird I created this match and never won it. But yet they chose Punk. It was a good it, choice. This is a really interesting period of CM Punk's career. June 2008, he cashes in on Edge. He wins the World Heavyweight Championship for the very first time. We get some really nice interviews in the documentary with Lars from Rancid, Colt Cabana, Kurt Hawkins. They all sort of make out that this title win was a huge moment for these indie guys mm. that came from these tiny wee federations. But then there's a comment from Triple H where Triple H is just like, yeah, well, I mean, it was just like I've always said, the title doesn't make the guy. The guy makes the title. At this time, I, I felt like the title was making him. And I was like, wow, you, the first chance you've got, you've been looking no, down. No, I, I don't see that as looking down because the same thing happened with Triple H when he first got his title. It was just Triple H was a guy who was a type. He just had the title and the title made him, not the other way around. It wasn't until his matches with Cactus Jack where everyone was like, he's legit. Before that, it was like, so I know now it's that thing of like Triple H doesn't like CM Punk, but I just looked at that 
is no, like Triple H has been there. So that's what I'm looking at. It's not him, like, he's like, I, I feel like that's more him speaking from experience than him being like, oh, CM Punk's crap. I, I can see where you're coming from there, Andy, because I'm pretty sure Triple H's first title reign is the one where he loses it to Vince McMahon on an episode of SmackDown. There's only the third one where he, he wins it back from Big Show and then has the thing with Cat. You said that he feels like the main guy at that point. And I think it just is a thing with we've talked about it for years, I think, as wrestling fans, that a lot of guys, even the most popular guys, like their first title reigns are sometimes like not never as good as you want them to be. And when you think about it, Punk wasn't really the top bill guy when he first won. He won it a week after he got drafted to Raw from ECW. And Scott Armstrong as well, thing like, oh, no, I think of that as the belt of Ric Flair and Triple H, you know, the guy in the suit, and then you see this guy with the tattoos, and then they reference these feud with Undertaker, and allegedly the match where he loses it to Taker in 09 that's like only 10 minutes inside Hell in a Cell is because Punk got in trouble for speaking up against Undertaker, because Taker, like, you're the champion, why are you not wearing a suit? Yeah, did they briefly touch up on that, where he was like, oh, yeah, and then I had to lose the title, and I was like, yeah, because you're being a bit of a dick backstage. <laughs> It's like, oh yeah, Taker didn't think he was going to respect Punk, but I think by the end, Taker respected him. With that first title, the first one, of course, he gets taken off him, like, sort of by forfeit. And in this yeah. bit of the documentary, yeah, it's weird. Right. We see the first signs of the cracks in the relationship between Punk and WWE. Like, you see his reaction mm-hmm. to him getting the belt taken off him. He's just like, ah, come on, guys. Like, what is this? Again, I think it's that thing that he's been given the belt and he's like, all right, what have you got for me? And then they're like, well, we've got these interesting, you know, it's the Shawn Michaels and the Chris Jericho feud, Cena and Batista. And, you know, it's kind of like there's all these things happening. It's just overshadowing Punk's win because I think it's that thing of, this is when I started to tune out as well of wrestling where there's just too much going on. It's like they don't, they have a bland sprit, but they don't really use it. And it's just like, he just was lost in the shuffle. And again, that's just, that's not his fault. It's just WWE's terrible booking. Punk takes it personally because, you know, that's just kind of what he does. Because the whole thing of the square match, the champion doesn't technically, I don't think, need to be pinned. Like, it's very important that we have JBL and Rey Mysterio and all that in this match who aren't going to win it. But, like, let's take the champion. Like, Jericho could have replaced anybody in that match, but they chose, the fact they chose Punk, yeah. I think, was a board of contention. It's a weird period of time. The belt's often very quickly, and it seems like the belt just goes in a very quick direction away from him thankfully like he sort of gets his love of wrestling back by going tagging with Kofi to win the tag titles he then goes on to his feud with Regal over the Intercontinental title Regal says that's some of the best work he's done on mm. WWE TV and before you know it we're back at Mania 25 in 2009 where Punk becomes I think is he the only man to win back-to-back money in the banks is he the only man to win two there are guys who haven't won it twice in the match but like there are guys Edge. like Edge and Miz who have won it off the guy it. Yeah, yeah. who's held it. But the guy who actually won not only back to back, but actually physically in the match, yeah. I think he might be the only one. But mm. I, I remember hearing that apparently people were a bit less happy about him winning a second time because going into that one, I think Christian had just come back and everybody wanted Christian to win because you actually watch the entrances back. Christian gets the loudest pop out of everyone in that match. It took us to Extreme Rules, where he cashes in on Jeff Hardy to win the belt a second time. Punk, uh, at this point, talks about how Jeff Hardy was just the perfect opponent for him. Punk was the absolute like antithesis of everything that Jeff Hardy was. They were the polar opposites in WWE, and it worked so well. Michael Hayes talks about CM Punk tearing up promos in front of writers and how he could be a real prick. He just didn't want to help a lot of help from creative because creative couldn't understand 
what was going on in his brain. And Ross and Hayes both talk about how CM Punk's matches with The Undertaker are what sort of solidified him as a main event star, because, of course, he drops the belt a second time to The Undertaker, as you mentioned. Talking about Hardy and Punk, it's mad how short this was. I feel like at that time, 2009, like, those two and the belt, that should have just been the staples of the company for years to come. But obviously, on both sides, it just didn't really work out. Considering it was a short feud, it's still memorable. Like, I remember that when he goes and meets Vince, and Vince is like, I don't know if you can do it, but I want you to be heel. And he's like, what's the challenge? And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, what's the challenge? People forget how great like CM Punk is as a, as a heel, but it's like, yeah, that those first few years in WWE wasn't, he was a face so it's quite interesting to see how quick and how comfortable he gets as that heel run and again people just remember i don't know if it's just because it's his first heel turn or the just because it is a great story between him and jeff hardy because they are just the poor opposites i think him turning heel was probably the best thing for him especially going into a world title program because he's a lot more effective in a main event capacity in my opinion as a heel than he is a face because he talks about not being treated as a top guy when he first won but like from like 06 up until the point where he turns to 09, he doesn't really have a character as a failure. Yeah, he mentions straight edge in ECW, but they don't mention it really a lot in, on the main roster when he goes over to Raw and that. His character is, oh, look at me, this guy that you know a lot of fans online like, and he's got tattoos, and isn't he so cool and all that? But So he didn't really have much of a character, so he got to showcase his character when he was a heel. And like, it's a lot the same way he talks about first doing straight edge on the indies, where he realizes he himself is a bit of a character and it turns out the fact that he himself can be a bit of a prick and so he becomes a bit of a prick yeah. about his lifestyle and uses that against everybody else. Yeah, it's, it's funny what you're mentioning there about like sort of legitimising punk. Mm-hmm. If you look back on it, see with the exception of maybe Jeff Hardy, right? Who was just, you know, he could do, he can go away and take hundreds of gear and come back to WWE <laughs> and everyone just always loves him. See if you take him out, pretty much every guy that has been pushed up to the champion has always done it in a heel capacity. When it's guys that have sort of plugged away before getting there, Edge did it as a heel. Seth Rollins worked with him. AJ Styles worked with him as well. Like Triple H as well is another good example. Like all these guys that have came through the card, I always feel like the first time they have the belt, they always seem to do it as a heel because I might have even spoken about this on ESSR before. It's almost like the fact that you hate them or the fact that you're supposed to hate them in a wrestling sense, that covers up the fact of you thinking, are they good enough to be a champion? Because mm-hmm. like, like, look at Roman Reigns. The first time he was WWE champion, everyone hated him. Same with John Cena to an extent as well. They were just like, why is this guy my champion? But when it's a heel, it's almost like it legitimizes them as a yeah. champion whilst giving you the hope of a face to beat them. And yeah. This is another example as well when he was champion in 2010. Again, and that's like I was saying, it's that thing of uh, obviously Punk moans that he's got the champion, he should be doing that. But when you look at Austin, he was a face champion. He never had the title for that long because it's better to see them chasing the title and having the big win rather than them being a long-term champion because it's just it's a boring story because it's more interesting as this guy you don't want as the champion. And, and again, he became that, that, that heel champion and everyone's like, right, who's going to beat him? So we get another jump cut and this time, like, I like that sort of they're telling the CM Punk story, but all the way through we get these little moments of like Punk's life, like we got a bit about his family, we'll get onto a little bit about music, and here we get to talk about his tattoos, and he gives a story on how he's got a million different tattoos. I'm kind of sad that Ross or maybe Gary aren't with us, because while he's talking about his tattoos in the tattoo parlour, I noticed that he's got a t-shirt on that just says, the old firm casuals. Yeah. But guys, this takes us on to one of the best bits 
in the whole documentary. One of the best bits of CM Punk's career, the straight edge society. I forgot how much I enjoyed this. Like, yeah. It was just so much fun to revisit this. It was such a good moment in wrestling. Like when really essentially Punk was as good as he would be post pipe bomb, but he was doing it like in a different guise. He talks about how close he was with Joey Mercury and Luke Gallows. The story behind it being that Luke Gallows was actually heavily medicated and, and Punk brought him out of that. That was perfect. And yeah, I just didn't realize how like close friends they were. Punk being in contact with Joey Mercury every day in the year when he was fired and eventually buying Joey Mercury's house for a six-figure sum to bail him out when he had some alcohol issues. It's funny as well, like, again, like, hindsight's so much fun watching this, like, Punk talking about, or Joey talking about Punk giving him money, and then you think about, like, the financial agreement that Punk had with Cole Cabana and the defamation lawsuit and how that all came about and how Punk and Cabana haven't spoken for 10 years since then. So it's like, it's just interesting. Like, I'd love to sit down with Punk and be like, what's the script here? What happened there? The, the story, I mean, like this continues on throughout the documentary, but the story with CM Punk and Colt Cabana leading from Colt Cabana's podcast into the lawsuit, it's all so murky. And like on the face of things, it looks like CM Punk was just a complete asshole one day and turned around and said, I'm not paying your legal fees anymore. And it's never really came out as to why this happened. Yeah. It's kind of a really shitty thing to happen. Like... I have no way of defending Punk in this. There's not really any way that he comes out of this looking good. But there is one thing that I've always kept in the back of my head. Now, this is really a bit of a curveball. But, like, I remember I went to a live talk with Mark Dallas, one of the ones in Bathgate when he was doing his little, you know, spoken word tour. And I remember asking him, how come Colt Cabana is never back in ICW? Because, obviously, you know, there was periods of time when Cabana would be over for the Edinburgh Fringe and he'd be in ICW every week. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure this isn't me throwing Mark Dallas under the bus because I'm sure I'm not the first person he said this to. But he said something that was quite interesting. He was like, Cabana is really great to work with when there's money involved. And I've always had that just in the back of my head with, to do with this lawsuit. Allegedly. In case Allegedly. SSR gets sued. We're, we're, we're obviously fucked then. <laughs> just say your name's Joe Smith. <laughs> Again, that's wrestling, isn't it? Once one person tells a story, another person tells a totally different story, and then you just kind of have to come up in the middle. But I don't really know. So, yes, Straight Edge Society. It was brilliant listening to how Punk basically realized he was hidden away on SmackDown, so there was so much more stuff he'd get mm. away with. He talked about how basically he was trying to portray himself as Jesus. He specifically picked like biblical names, Joseph and Luke, for the other members. And it was brilliant, look, like listening to the crowd react to them when they were at the house shows. Devil. Like, like people <laughs> screaming the devil at them. They, they talked about yeah. uh, an old woman jumping the fence so she could slap him. And this all came because he spoke about going into Vince's office and dropping 14 weeks of TV on his desk. And I don't doubt that Punk did this at all. And he said that the sad thing was is the Straight Edge Society sort of ran its course because he gave them chicken salad and they turned it into chicken shit, which oh. is funny because that's like one of Stone Cold's line that, lines that he always uses in his podcast. What did you guys think of Straight Edge Society? I think it's it's a great idea. And again, I feel like it's more Charlie Manson vibes than Jesus vibes. I was going to mention before, it's just the way Punk goes on in this documentary. It's like the more successful he got, the more he wanted to control his own character and narrative. And obviously that's not really WWE's model. But it, is a, it was a good thing, and it made it turned Luke Gallows into a much bigger star than what it was. Obviously, that uh, instant character change. 
But they do mention it's like him and the Royal Rumble is like one of the best parts of that. Oh one. yes, he's doing like the ceremony, and like every time he throws somebody, out, then starts talking, comes in, throws them out. Beth Phoenix, I think he just finished dating at that time with a GTS <laughs> mid sentence talking to Zach Ray, where he goes, looks like he's a bit off and join the straight. Uh, how would you like to join the straight? Uh, <laughs> that's him with a microphone, and then metaphor for Punk's career after that. Who would be the one to throw him out that Rumble? But Triple H. Triple H. It's so funny to like watch this documentary thinking that Punk was still employed when they made this because mm. there's so many yeah. points, you know, that you can see the mindset that Punk was in when he left. Like Punk speaks a lot about the Miz and him being in the main event of WrestleMania. Oh, I wanted, and, I've been waiting to talk about this. Yeah, same well, as well. So he talks about how he should have been in the spot that the Miz was in because he felt that he was the top heel in the company at the time. And, you know, WrestleMania should be your top face against your top heel. Now, do you guys remember who did Punk fight at this Mania? And and what did you think about them booking Miz? Do you think that was valid? Me, personally, I thought that Miz worked really well in that yeah. spot. Again, Miz has been in WWE longer than what Punk was in. And again, I think when it comes to, like, like he's a great heel, it's Punk, but you like him too much. He's too entertaining, whereas the Miz you just don't like. And he wasn't a likeable person. And again, it's... The match itself was like not good because it was overshadowed by The Rock, which I think doesn't help. But again, I think, yeah, The Miz was perfect for that, especially with that promo they used for him before the match. I hated this because like, it seems like Punk, even today, like during his feud with MJF, he called MJF a less famous Miz. Like, clearly, Punk has not gotten over the fact that Miz got to main event WrestleMania <laughs> and he didn't. Like, there's a lot of bitterness there. Like, it just annoys me because there are some people out there who comment on wrestling who totally haven't. I refuse to acknowledge the fact that Miz has gotten better as a performer, you know, not just on the mic, but as a like in yeah. ring guy, even though he's not like on the same level as your like air indie guys, but like he's still a great performer. And he was a solid deal. He did work his arse off. He was a guy who was close it seemed like close to getting fired that nobody wanted. But because yeah. he didn't come out the same way as Punk, because Punk's like, Oh, you can't tell me he worked hard on me, like, well he worked as hard I think as you to be fair, I remember that story with the Miz where it was like he was eating chicken and it went into Chris Benoit's bag and then he was like dressed yeah. in the toilets. You know, it's like Punk never had to go through that. And one thing I did think watching this is like, yeah, he moans and he's like, it doesn't feel like he's like, oh, he's getting all this stuff. But next thing he's like, he's winning tag team champions. He's winning the IC title. He's winning the money in the bank again. He's like, he's kind of like getting what he kind of deserves, but he just in his head. I think Punk's one of those people who, because he's had it so shit, he deserves so much more. But it's like the same, it's like where the Miz in this uh, interview, in this documentary, is like nothing but nice and respectful to him. Yeah. <laughs> as, soon as, he, as soon as it comes to that main event, he's like, the Miz didn't deserve it. I deserved it. Miz, Mike talks about drink Cub pops up during the OVW, because I think Miz would have been around there as well. Miz said something there and in Deep South. So he's talking about Punk, because so probably would have been around the time he's giving praise to Punk and everything. And then they're talking about Punk post-fight. He's like, oh, Punk's the man right now and everything. Like, Miz is nothing but he's, imagine I don't think Miz went out of his way to watch the full documentary but if he had I'm sure he would have been pissed off about what Punk said about him because seeing that Miz was nothing but nice with Punk in this documentary like maybe Miz was just putting it on for the cameras maybe he secretly hates Punk and really like, I wouldn't blame him but the fact that he didn't showcase how he probably really feels and just did say nothing of nice things about Punk but Punk shit on him at the first opportunity is one of those cases where, like it makes Punk look like the arsehole in that hmm. situation like if, if you don't rise to something that someone else is saying and treat them as you want to be treated everyone will see them as the arsehole and that's what Miz has done to Punk here 
there's a bit next, and we're we're about to get to the main event of this documentary. But just before that, there's a bit where Punk talks about his contract coming up. And Punk essentially puts it off until he gets to like a year left on his deal and then just flat refuses to sign. He says he was tired. He says he felt sick. He felt repressed. And I just. He's old. He's tired. He works with fucking children. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was watching this. I was just like, we've heard this story. We heard this story, what, two, three years ago. This is the exact same story as Dean Ambrose. The, The parallels with CM Punk and Dean Ambrose slash John Moxley are so similar, except John Moxley obviously went through with it and left. There's a bit that I've mentioned right at the end, but like one of the closing shots of the whole documentary is you see CM Punk talking to Dean Ambrose. Dean Ambrose is in a suit and stuff. And I was just like, you wonder how much of an influence the CM Punk situation was on what happened to Dean Ambrose. Because it wouldn't Mm -hmm. have been that long after. Yeah, I picked up on that as well when you see him standing and it's like so weird seeing like Dean with the long hair and it's just like, oh God, these guys are going to like main event and talk shit about each other like 10 years later. Yeah, Ambrose is going to beat him in like three minutes for a world title. But yeah, so I just I just wanted to pick up on that. I thought that that story is so funny how hearing word for, like almost word for word the yeah. same between John Mox and the, CM Punk. The, the thing that I pick up on as well with this documentary is like Punk just wants to be seen as a locker room leader. And just demand that respect and it's like you hear stories where it's like edge and jericho talk about how we always had that attitude and he like then it's just i think again he's he's a bit like that bret hart thing where he believes he's on hype that he deserves all this stuff and moxley's similar or not i don't know I, I just know if it's not going your way it's just punks that poster boy if it's well it's not going my way then i'm going to bitch and moan and say i'm going to like leave and stuff like that and again leading up to the pipe bomb everything kind of worked out in his favor for about a year the parallels to Hart, I think, are bang on because, you know, it's also fitting given that his recent matches in Star AEW where everybody was putting them side by side, how similar they were to old Bret Hart matches. A couple of things about Punk and his attitude and, like, wanting to be a locker room leader. I remember, I think it may have been Cody who told this story about being in a locker room and, like, people were leaving stuff lying on the floor when they should have put it away or threw it in a trash. And Punk basically stood up for him. I think he was the champion. And he said, guys, it's locker room leader. That's how he started his sentence. Yeah. Apparently Booker T was reading a newspaper or a magazine and without looking up he said if you have to say you're a locker room leader you're not a locker room leader and just Owen CM Punk without even looking up from what he was reading. <laughs> it also the thing that keep, people keep showing like, in the wake of especially the controversy with Punk recently is the, the clip that Triple H said about CM Punk like you say you want change but you only want change if it benefits you if it means CM Punk's the top guy and a lot of stuff he said in this latter half of the documentary even says almost word for word that like no, I want change when what's good for this place is like me on top or something like that. So yeah. he pretty much almost word for word says exactly what Triple H said about him. And that, that's the impression I get as well, where it's like, yeah, I think he'll believe that, oh, he's the reason that you've got all these indie guys. And it's like, not really. It's just because you're the first doesn't mean that you're the influence. It's like, because you're just such a hard person to deal with. And it just comes across so much more in hindsight, just how much he just sort of believes his own hype. Can I just say, something I meant to bring up earlier on, I didn't know hell else to put it in but because we talked about his relationship with triple h and which is in this documentary do you guys find it weird that we don't get anything from vince here we hear people talking about stuff yeah. Vince said to him but we never get any vince for some reason i assumed that vince popped up in the in the documentary but then obviously he doesn't because like punk and vince like he never disliked vince in the way that he disliked triple h so i'm assuming that vince given that he put the belt on punk and also would have approved this documentary like would have popped up at some point Maybe in a kayfabe sense, they didn't want to look like 
you know, a year after this big massive thing that mysteriously Vince and Punk were both back on the same side. Mm. Because they didn't even see Punk. I don't even see Vince, sorry, uh, appear in that Money in the Bank clip. It's just like literally you kind of see this in the corner. But yeah, they don't really highlight them at all for this uh, documentary. Well, guys, we've made it. The main <laughs> event of this whole documentary, June 27th, 2011. We finally get to it. One of the biggest moments in wrestling history, is no doubt about it. It was 11 years and three months ago as we speak to you right now. One of the most famous wrestling promos mm-hmm. of all time. Before we dive into it, do you remember where you were in June 2011 when this happened? I remember I was living in England and it kind of happened. And my friend was basically like, oh, have you seen what CM Punk says? Oh my God, he like got a live mic and he said all this stuff. And it was that sort of idea where it's like, is this legit? Is this like, like what is, is he like legit just went on the mic? And because again, I think at this point, like a lot of people I knew just stopped watching wrestling. I stopped watching wrestling. I think I watched it because The Rock was like on the way back. But that really put eyes back on shit wrestling's like interesting again. I remember like I wasn't staying up to watch Raw Live back then because I was still in school. I had a year, maybe a year and a bit left. I remember hearing about it. wasn't really on social media, so Ross told me to watch it. I watched it separately before I watched the actual episode of Raw, and then I loved the promo so much that when it came up to that bit at the end, where I didn't turn it off, I just watched the promo mm. again. I was so shocked because there were things that I hadn't heard them talk about in WTV since I'd started watching it again that I remembered from before. Like, the idea of anybody mentioning Paul Heyman or Brock Lesnar at that point yeah. was bizarre to me, like, because I remembered he- Paul Heyman, I remembered Brock Lesnar. and Even Hulk Hogan. Yeah. Yeah, but the most interesting bit for me personally is when he mentions like New Japan and Ring of Honor. I legit remember when I was after watching it, turned to Ross and saying, "What's Ring of Honor?" And he <laughs> said, "I think it's like it's the third biggest promotion in America by TNA and WWE." From there, that's when I started looking up what Ring of Honor was, and I discovered matches from the Indies. And that's that was pretty much the start of me discovering what indie wrestling was and becoming the smart and bastion of wrestling knowledge you know today. I remember going down a wormhole or rabbit hole, whatever you want to call it, and watching Ring of Honor matches. I even discovered one of my favourite matches, what's today one of my favourite matches of all time, which is the Nigel McGuinness versus Brian Danielson match from, from London in 2006. I remember I wasn't watching live at this time either, but I would watch the shows on like YouTube, mm. like maybe like a few weeks at a time. I would just like watch like Ross Smackdown, Ross Smackdown. So sometimes I wouldn't watch anything for like a month. And I remember I was about a month behind and I saw a tweet that everyone was sharing from Stone Cold Steve Austin. I actually went and found it before we started recording. It was from June 28th, the day after. And it said, CM Punk just melted my 52-inch TV with a scorching hot promo. Delivery, content, and attitude. One of the best promos I've ever seen. And when I went back to actually watch the shows, and I knew something was coming. I still, despite that, just remember being in absolute awe of it. Like, it was just so well done. I remember I sat down with my girlfriend, Emma, and my brother, Adam, at the time, and I had this piece of paper that had a key on it. And on the key, it had all these, like, wrestling explanations. It was, like, Vince McMahon, who Vince was, Ring of Honor, Colt Cabana, Make-A-Wish, and, like, what everything meant. And then I just made them both watch it all. And, like, don't get me wrong, I can't even remember the reaction. They could have just been like, yeah, I agree. (laughs) But it felt like this was, like, this moment that, like, transcended wrestling. And it was just like the best thing I've ever seen. Here's how I know that it's good, right? The full transcript of that promo is on genius.com. It used to be rap, <laughs> it used to be rapgenius.com. 
It's this website that allows people to sort of annotate things line by line. It's used for song lyrics, but here is mm-hmm. CM Punk's yeah. promo on it. I wrote down some of my favourite lines. And I'll take you through them now. I won't do his voice, but it starts off, John Cena, I have a lot of things I want to get off my chest. I don't hate you, John. I don't even dislike you. I hate this idea that you're the best because you're not. I'm the best. I'm the best in the world. There's one thing that you're better at than I am, and that's kissing Vince McMahon's ass. I've grabbed so many of Vince's brass rings that it's finally dawned on me that they're just that. They're completely imaginary. And trust me, this isn't sour grapes, but the fact that Dwayne is in the main event at WrestleMania next year and I'm not makes me sick. I'm leaving with the WWE Championship on July 17th, and who knows, maybe I'll go defend it in New Japan. Maybe I'll go back to Ring of Honor. Hi, Cole Cabana, how you doing? And after I'm gone, you're still going to pour money into this company. I'm just a spoke on the wheel. And I'd like to think that maybe this company will be better after Vince McMahon is dead. But the fact is, it's going to be taken over by his idiotic daughter and his doofus son-in-law and the rest of his stupid family. And just those words, I was looking back on them, I was like, 10 years later, 10 years later, and so much of that is so true. If only he could have said it'll be taken over by them and some guy called Nick Khan. We've all been like, really, he can really see the future. Yeah, like Nostradamus sort of level of uh, wrestling sort of thing. I did like the, it was like the different son-in-law, but yet since Vince's retirement, it's like WWE is like in a pure like hotspot of like, this is watchable. Again, I was actually pretty, it's like by far one of the best things that's happened to wrestling because mm-hmm. it did bring a lot of fans in and Punk was saying stuff that fans were saying for ages where it's like, oh, Cena's like the top and you know, what is this? Uh, you know, it's not my wrestling kind of thing. And he just, I think after that, I was like, started watching pay-per-views again, like, and, and just like keeping yeah. in contact. I think I had an app, a wrestling app, but we just used to, so I used to like what night shift on a Monday. So I just like read up the updates of what was happening on Raw. And it honestly did just break like that, that sort of second fire in wrestling. And I was thinking if he was faced with the promo would have hit as well. I feel like him oh, being heel just it just added so much more to it, and it was just again watching it again today. Uh, as I remember when I when I uh, saw it on the DVD originally, I just skipped it because I think I'd seen it that many times. So I was like, oh, I know what he says, whereas I hadn't seen the promo in so long that I was like, yeah, it's just it's just so good. But it's so interesting to see it ten years on, and it's like Vince is retired now. You know, the son-in-law is in charge. You know, it's just like, <laughs> it's just quite interesting. I was surprised they played literally the full thing because clearly everybody knows it, but they're like, there are those of you out there probably want to watch it again. And so they'll, they'll, they played the full thing. And what he says about what the company after Vince is dead, I think it does speak to a lot, a lot of us thought about Vince in that you know, we were all shocked that he retired, not just because obviously we're going to get to see the company under the vision of someone else, but the fact that nobody really thought the idea of like people taking over from Vince would probably come after he died. Like if Vince had his way, mm. he would have worked till the day he died. He would have dropped dead at his desk. That would be it. The fact that he then did was forced to kind of to walk away is bizarre. And like it's even like weirder to talk about nowadays because like at a convention shortly after Triple H it was in his Triple H was taken over and before there were a lot of the changes were set in, Punk was asked about it and Punk basically but just said that don't expect much change. Things are probably just gonna stay the same. And yet AEW, partly because of him being a dickhead in a media scrum, is mm. falling apart the seams at the minute, and WWE is seem like going from strength to strength. That is by far one of the best things to ever happen to wrestling, because I think mean, it just brought a lot of people back who stopped watching wrestling. 
I love, as you say, that the whole thing was just left in on the DVD. But not only that, but I love that you got to hear his own reaction to it. Because obviously after that, he just went back to being in character on WWE TV. But he actually says in the documentary, like, it felt like he just was able to get everything out. Because they just gave him a microphone and, and let him say what he wanted to say. And I love that the wrestlers as well, like Colt and Kurt Hawkins and Kofi Kingston, they were all talking about it afterwards, how the place was just a buzz after this promo. And I noted one line, I think it was Kofi that said it. He said, it was almost the start of a revolution. Mm. And it's like, it took another 10 years before they got the revolution. <laughs> so that takes us up to the big day, July oh. 17th, 2011, Money in the Bank. The atmosphere in the arena is unmatched. I was like trying to describe it because like they put in like 30 seconds of the intros on the DVD and it's feral. Like as soon as the last match finishes and the promos are done, there's just a moment where everyone stands up and they're all just screaming CM Punk's name. You get that famous sign that's like, if, if, Punk, is Punk, it if Punk loses, we riot. Or if Cena wins, we, riot, we riot. Punk says it was the most high pressure situation he's ever been in. Michael Cole sells it as one of the biggest matches in the history of WWE. Yeah. It's quite cool that Ace Steel says that him and Colt Cabana were both in the front row because I think they obviously probably kept the camera off them. And I didn't know as well that, like, of course, it came out on the documentary that CM Punk, after winning the match and leaving the arena, did sign a new contract. He signed it day. during the day, yeah. yeah. He says that Vince said to him, you've really got me over a battle here. But I, I would never have guessed that the people that talked CM Punk into staying were Joey Mercury and Lars from Rancid. I think that's just quite fitting that it took a voice, sort of almost voices outside of wrestling, to bring him back. And he says why he signed afterwards. He says wasn't about the money. It was 100% about respect and being placed on the card where I deserved to be. That sort of almost leads us up to the very end of the documentary. We get some good sort of closing shots of Punk talking to John Moxley, as I said. There's a wee bit at the end that I didn't like where John Cena says, there's no quit in that kid. And I was like, <laughs> Punk has been in the game a lot longer than you. And the show ends with a promo from CM Punk back in IWA. He says, my name is CM Punk. I am drug free. I'm alcohol free. And you are all right with me. And we fade to black as the fans chant CM Punk. And then there's this sort of sneaky sort of Marvel style post credit scene of CM Punk in his bus. And he's in like this robe. He's uh, telling the cameraman, it's over, go home. I just sort of loved how the ending contrast of like sort of disgusting, skinny, like grainy footage of Punk from IWA and then contrasting straight after with this like WWE Punk with the bus and the robe and the sort of lavish like road lifestyle. It just shows how far he's came in that space of time. But yes, that is our best in the world documentary. And I have a very important question for you both. It's been now over 10 years since that pipe bomb promo. And we got to relive it this week by watching back this DVD. So I ask you both, was Punk right? And everything well, he said in this promo? I think half of it. I think at the time he was right. But again, everyone's talking about how amazing Triple H is doing is now he's taking over. And at the time, fans were just really frustrated with the product and he said exactly what we were all thinking. And again, we didn't know what it was going to be like after Vince had gone. So it was like, yeah, we'll just take his word for it. So it was that sort of, we were feeling what he was feeling. If we were to do it now, I don't think we'd believe him as much. Also, this was like pre-NXT, as we would go on to know it. So NXT gave us kind of an indication of what WWE might look like today now under Triple H. And you could do see some parallels and the way some some acts are booked and were booked in NXT as they are in the roster right now. 
I think he was right to air some of his grievances, but I think it just goes to show that Punk hasn't changed 10 years later because whether he's given promo time or not, or if he just decides to take the time for himself during the media scrum, he's going to get a lot of things off his chest. I actually personally thought that for someone who's quite naive about like wrestling and CM Punk, I thought it was quite a good recount of his entire career up to this title one. I think if you're like a CM Punk fan like me, who's quite blinkered, quite ignorant to like a lot of his like arseholeness, I think it did an okay <laughs> job. I remember at a time when that came out, that DVD, they were like, this is different from any other WWE documentary. This is like changed how a WWE documentary should look like and feel. Were you sort of happy with the full thing, Scott? Yeah, yeah. I, I like the way it's like put together. Like you said the transitions from like modern day punk and how it relates to the past and everything. But I think when it got closer to the paint bomb, you got to see more of like the real CM Punk and his real film. Not just like how he was bit then, but just how he looks at himself and the way he kind of looks down on a lot of other people. You know, good side of CM Punk and then you get to see kind of the, the bad side of CM Punk towards the end. And I think a lot of what has happened recently as we talk about it, We've seen more of that second state of punk, which kind of clouded my view of like him right now. I think I'm happy that this documentary aired more on the side of like bias towards CM Punk, whereas then you've got the other side of the coin where they do like the rise and fall of Ultimate Warrior, which just felt like two hours of everyone ripping into how mm-hmm. much they hated him. And like there needs to be like a sort of happy middle ground in that. With this, they've done a good job of telling the story. There's obviously a lot of bits that they've missed out, but overall, yeah, I thought it was it was a, it was a good show, good first watch, because that was our first episode of It's Still Real to Me on Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. We're going to be back in a few months. We're going to look at another wrestling documentary. I think we set the bar pretty high with the first one. Of course, if you're listening to this and you've got a piece of wrestling media somewhere that you want us to review then send it in. It could be anything as long as it's loosely factual. And I use the term loosely, very loosely. (laughs) So if you want us to review like a table for three or a dark side of the ring episodes or even like an episode of Total Bellas, we'll dive in. Get on it. (laughs) We could even review the CM Punk media scrum from the other month. That could be the next episode. But um, I think I need a break. Bonus episode. (laughs) <laughs> I think I need a break from punk for a little while. Thank you very much to Andy and Scott for joining me. Scott, do you have anything that you'd like us to watch in future? Uh, I think we should wait to do anything punk related for another seven years, really, to get the full authentic punk authenticity. But in terms of stuff like to review, definitely Dark Side of the Ring, maybe the Flare Thirty for Thirty kind of thing. I think that's uh, an interesting look, given obviously stuff about Ric Flair, how people feel about him. The Triple H one that Andy mentioned, like there's a couple of different Triple H documentaries you look at. I also wouldn't mind the self destruction of Ultimate Warrior because I thought he was a prick as well. So I'd happily talk about how he's a prick for two hours. <laughs> That's true as well. Andy, have you got any pressing episodes of Total Divas you want us to watch? Or uh, the first ones, I've never seen it. I think we should watch terrible stuff. It's always fun to review terrible mm-hmm. stuff. We should watch Legends House, the self destruction <laughs> of Ultimate Warrior. Also, that very terrible 2006 DX DVD that is like by far. We should do it because it'd be hilarious to be like this is awful. <laughs> let's like I, I prefer the the ugly side of the sort of let's talk about this crap. But if we're talking about something good, as you know, I'm a big Stone Cold fan. I've got the same haircut as him. Uh, <laughs> not by choice. That's a really good uh, documentary. It's just his career, and I think it's like a free DVD, and it's a, it's really interesting. I think it's that's the bottom line. Uh, the Stone Cold story. 
Nice one. Well, that is a wrap for this episode. Thank you a bunch for your time tonight, guys. Join us next week. I had to go and find out what we're talking about next week, but we're going to be turning our focus to the UK and Indies. ICW have a big show coming up next month. I wonder if that will get a mention. Stay tuned for that one, and we'll see you soon.